Episode 15 of the Agents of E-Commerce podcast. I know I took a bit of a hiatus, but life does get in the way sometimes. And uh, I, uh, But I'm back now, and I hope to be doing a few more of these uh, as time makes available. So I'd like to introduce Jared Blank. Uh, he has been as gracious to have this conversation with me. Uh, Jared and I go back oh, a good ways, almost maybe 10 years, back to when he was at Tommy Hilfiger and I was at Monetate. Uh, he was a wonderful customer there, and we got to know each other, and we've sort of stayed in taps with each other throughout our, our career as we've grown. So uh, say hello, Jared. Great to be here, Eric. Thank you. So again, you've had a, a pretty amazing run in a number of different roles within technology, primarily, I guess, in and around e-commerce and digital. Uh, how, how did you get into this field? Because you know, when we were in college, and someone would ask you what you wanted to do, this, this wasn't even something that people could describe, let alone plan for. So love to hear how you got into this field. Yeah, I, I feel like I graduated five years ago, but I, I definitely did not. Uh, it, was, it was a long time ago. There was, we were just at the beginning of the internet in the uh, early mid-90s. Uh, going into that as a career didn't seem possible to me. I was, I was an English major it felt like only computer science people, or at that point, I guess, people who were studying, I don't know what, Fortran, COBOL, I don't know what people studied back then, uh, would, would go into tech. Uh, but after uh, a bunch of years later, uh, or a few years later, I went to work for a large consulting firm, uh, gained some sort of knowledge around, we didn't call it digital commerce back then, but uh, we called it like e-business. Uh, and then uh, after that, was able to parlay that into uh, a job as an analyst at a uh, at a at a uh, digital research firm. Awesome. And so with that role as an analyst, you started to gain some expertise that you could parlay in, into uh, different fields. And then you ended up obviously at Tommy on the, the retail side. Um, how was that for you? Was that one of your first larger gigs there on the retail client side? Yeah. So I, when I was an analyst at Jupiter Research, which is now part of Forrester, uh, you know, I think I learned at that point, you can sort of, I don't mean, I don't like fake it till you make it, but I do think there's, I, I've learned that confidence goes a long way. I, and so I, I was actually hired as a B2B analyst, which is funny because we've been talking about B2B online for 20 years and marketplaces. And then it kind of, we didn't talk about it so much. And then it's recently come back as a hot topic, uh, which I think you, you well as know, you know, as well as anybody. And while I was at Jupiter, I sort of was able to push aside the B2B stuff and admit, oh, I don't really know much about that, but I'd love to talk about retail and travel, sort of weaseled my way into that and, and end up talking about retail and digital marketing for a couple of years. A boss of mine from there went to Tommy Hilfiger to build out their first e-commerce business and took me along uh, for the ride. Awesome. Yeah, so Tommy was a, a good ride, I believe, a good time for you. Um, so talking about you know different gigs you've had over over the years, what would you say would be your favorite and, and why? What was a gig that, you know, if you could recapture that moment in your past, uh, what, what was it? Yeah, my, my career's really been split between the analyst thing. Uh, I was at Hilfiger for a total of eight years and change running e-commerce there. And then I've spent the last seven or so in on the B2B marketing side of things. And the analyst role still is a, 
a job I think about all the time and how much fun it was. And in the early 2000s, it's hard to even remember how, uh, how big a question the whole concept of e-commerce was. And there were still lots and lots of brands on the retail side who thought, you know what, maybe we won't need a website. Maybe we don't need to sell online. This may just be a fad. I actually covered travel for a couple of years in there. The travel industry, is, as much as retailers thought their world blew up overnight, travel was, uh, you know, most travel was booked through travel agencies in the 1990s. There were something like 70,000 travel agents. And then by the early 2000s, there were something like 25,000. Like two thirds of the business closed. The world was in massive upheaval and people actually wanted to hear what I thought, which is, you know, <laughs> crazy because in a job, often like in a, in a, when I've been on the other side, I do feel like sometimes people don't actually care what you think. And it was amazing for a few years to work with just a brilliant group of people who really pushed me, work with clients who really wanted to talk through just foundational issues to their business. And I, it's, hard to, it's hard for me to really envision there will be another set of stars that align the way the people I worked with, the industry changing, and these unbelievable transformational forces uh, around e-commerce coming together like that. It, it felt like a once-in-a-lifetime uh, opportunity. Yeah, I think, you know, a couple of things you say stick in my head, things like timing, right? It's sort of a product market fit or services market fit. Some of these things just all come together, the right people. It really is like a, a constellation of events that need to come together, right, to make it one of those special moments. Oh, yeah. I, I think a lot about, right, I was 28, 29 at that time. And I do think like, oh, was it part of it just, oh, I just moved to New York City and I work with people my age and we're all kind of single and having fun. And I, I do think about that. Like, was that the thing? But I, it's funny. I like, I just went to dinner with a bunch of people from that era from 20 years ago, who I still keep in touch with. I, I think, I think it was more than just, Oh, I moved to the city and I was in my twenties and it was fun. I think it was something else. And I think it was just this lucky confluence uh, of events. Like you said, timing is a lot of it. And I think you can sort of hit it in your career where that might not happen until your forties, where, you know, you've been working for 15 years and suddenly you're like, you know what, let me be honest with myself. I actually just like to write. Let me get a job writing or something like that, where, you know, you, you sort of find your groove. And sometimes that just comes later. I think I was just lucky that that also occurred at the same time the world was in massive change. Yeah. So, so you talk about writing and obviously you have an English uh, background uh, from education and now you're writing a lot. Uh, I mean, the gobble, the uh, and just so we'll be clear here, you have a, a newsletter that you put out called Gobbledy, and I believe the podcast is also uh, Gobbledy as well? They're both called Gobbledy. I think that's the extent of all of the Gobbledy in my life. <laughs> okay, good, good. And uh, I, I've been obviously, I've read several of them. I think they're, they're, they're really, it's really good stuff. And for those of us sort of in e-commerce, in digital, who've worked at companies that are uh, trying to differentiate themselves, trying to communicate a fairly challenging value proposition when it comes to to e-commerce technology. It is fairly complicated that the number of people you have to reach, the way you have to reach them, and not a lot of companies are, are, are sort of doing it well. And there's a lot of bad examples out there. There's some good as well. So, so what what pushed you to finally create Gobbledy? All right. Yeah. So Gobbledy is a newsletter, uh, gobbledy.substack.com, G-O-B-B-L-E-D-Y.substack.com. Gobbledy is what I call, uh, the, when you read 
software websites and it's a bunch of words and you're like, oh, it's a customer data platform engaged with enterprises who are customer centric. And it's just words that don't really mean anything. That's gobbledy. And companies fall back on it because it's hard to describe succinctly what you do and why you're different. And, you know, there, there's a great old ad that David Ogilvy, the old ad man, ran uh, about, uh, about advertising. And the first thing he says in it is that everything comes from positioning, that you cannot build, he was talking about advertising, but it's true about marketing more broadly. You cannot really build marketing campaigns, advertising campaigns, if you cannot tell me who you are competing with, define a competitive set, and how you are differentiated from them. And because a lot of software companies, I would say most software companies, don't do that very difficult work, you end up falling back on the same phrases in a way so that you could signal to people, hey, we're just like these other things. But that's a crazy way of marketing yourself. Like in consumer packaged goods and consumer, you would never say, oh, we're a sour cream that's the same as Breakstone's. You wouldn't. It would be something else. It would be sour cream for athletes or sour cream for people on a diet or sour cream for millennials. You would define it. You would say we are for this very specific group in this unique way. Software companies don't do that. They fall back on words that I call gobbledy, which mean nothing because it's a very defensive position. They're afraid of alienating anybody. And so they say very little. Yeah. And I think one reason uh, I was reading one of your pieces regarding tech is uniquely problematic is that many of these companies are started by engineers, technologists, not sort of classical trained marketers. Although some, some companies have sort of that wonderful team of the techie and the sales guy. Um, but, but what we have now, I think, is often a product of, of where these companies came from. I, I think that's part of it. And I think I don't want to blame the sales guys because you're a sales guy and sales guys and women are, are key views of the business. I don't think it's actually the engineers necessarily. Because I think if you said to someone who started a company, why did you start this company? They would probably say something like, oh, I recognize there was a very specific need in the market. And either there was a piece of product functionality missing or they said, you know, if you're this type of buyer – the products out there don't solve uh, your problem. And I actually think the engineers, if you had the right conversation with them, the, the, the engineer founder could really elucidate who it's for and why it's different. And I think what ends up happening is that the sales team oftentimes, with good intentions, is very afraid of turning down any business. And so they try to go broader. My thesis is the tighter you go with your messaging and your target market, the tighter you go, the easier the conversations are. I've had a hard time <laughs> convincing sales folks of that to say, no, you're much better off speaking to the 5% of the market where you're the best choice than saying like, no, we're great for everybody. It's like that's, that's, that's very hard to sell to. Yeah, I would agree. And, and also it puts you in bad situations where you can't be totally honest about your value proposition, right? I think one of the most powerful things you could say as a salesperson or a marketer is sort of no. We don't do that. That's not who we are. And that gets you some pretty immediate credibility as well. Oh, de definitely. I think and for some reason that, that is very uncomfortable for people, like really uncomfortable for people. But I think that 
the more you can be specific about why you're different, who you're for, the more it will resonate in the conversations with that target market. And I get that there's pressure, especially in a VC-backed business, especially now, uh, to grow, 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 grow. But I think you grow by saying we are going to capture 70% of this very small market, and then we'll, you know, then we'll deal with how do we grow from there. There's lots of ways of thinking about how you do that. But capturing 70% of some market is, the, the, is a really difficult challenge. And I think companies go about that backwards by saying we'll take whatever comes in and hopefully we can close some of those. That, that's very hard to do. Yeah, it, it is. And it's not artfully done uh, on, this, on the standard. One question I have is when you think about the different types of products out there, there's obviously the commodity technologies like CMS and uh, content management systems. Um, and then there's more leading edge. Uh, which ones, I mean, is it harder for commodity technologies to sort of go down this path? Or do you think it's more of a challenge for, for companies on leading edge that have to sort of establish the pain that they're actually trying to solve? Commodities get a bad rap. Commodity is not a bad word. It does not mean boring. It doesn't mean unsellable. Commodity means that you're going to have to take a bit of a different approach. And the way that, and especially in consumer, that commodities get sold is through branding or price or distribution channel, right? Like if you're a can of green beans, it doesn't mean you can't make a profit if you're a company that sells a can of green beans. It means, okay, do we come up with a funny mascot? Do we hire a celebrity? Do we make sure we're seven cents cheaper? Do we make sure that we're in uh, hardware stores for survivalists, right? There, there's it's a different set of questions you have to ask yourself about how am I going to, I'm a commodity, but you can, Coke is a commodity, it's sugar water, but they created a brand around it. It's, I think there's, I think software companies are a little bit loathe or not really comfortable with how you do that. Salesforce, which I wouldn't, I wouldn't say Salesforce is a commodity, but plays in mature, uh, in mature industries has done a really great job of branding the Salesforce experience around the whole trailblazer thing and coming up with characters and, and, and making it very clear when you interact with them, what they are. A lot of companies don't do that. And so you end up feeling like, oh, we're just a commodity. It's just a price game where it doesn't have to be. It's very, 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 very hard to be a new technology and create a space for yourself. It's very hard. And I kind of, I always knock on play bigger, which is about defining a category for yourself. That's incredibly hard to do. If you are something new, the best way you can go to market is to tell somebody, hey, you know this thing that you love? We're that, but better in this specific way. <laughs> Trying to create something brand new is and convince somebody they need it. There's no budget. There's no buyer. There's no, uh, there's no one to own it. There's none of those things. But if you're a somewhat better, I don't know, email product, something else, there is a buyer, there is a budget, there's an owner, there is a project. That makes it that at least lubricates, it gives you a chance of selling, but saying like, no, we're none of those things. We're a whatever. That's, that's very, very hard. And a lot of companies have made that mistake. Yeah. And, and something you brought up earlier, I always think about is that where brand plays into this, you mentioned Salesforce and the way they've sort of, in me, the Ohana, the Hawaiian kind of mystique they're trying to pull in, which doesn't always work because uh, it doesn't seem to click into other aspects of who they are. But I, I like the attempt. And, and you know, when I was at Monetate, I thought they did a really good job in sort of 
our brand, even though our logo kind of looked like the Autism Awareness logo. And as my mom used to always describe, um, I worked for a company called Monistat, which is <laughs> not at all which is the company I worked yeah. for. But yeah. at, at the same level, they really tried to both identify themselves as the people that worked for the company because there's a lot of interaction, obviously, when it's a, a services slash product based solution. Um, you know, what, what's your experience and your feeling about how, how brand can sort of dictate this voice? It, the challenge is, and it's, the problem lies, I think, actually, with B2B marketers who at some point pitch the concept that everything we do can be measured immediately. And brand is a little bit more nebulous. And the problem is the cost of measuring it is not, is expensive. And oftentimes, if you're a Series A, Series B, Series C startup, it's not worth the time and effort it would take to do the level of brand management that a Procter & Gamble does. And so you do have to just, on some level, and this is super uncomfortable, you got to believe. You got to believe in what the brand that you're the, in the brand that you define in how you represent it from everything, what it looks like on the website. If you have a mascot hiring, what you call your conference rooms, every interaction, right? It, it is, it's very hard to do that because someone will say to you, well, how can you prove that XYZ brand initiative brings ROI? And I would say like, if you're a $20 million company, you're not going to measure that. But what I can promise you is it will lubricate every other interaction because people, people will then have a set of, um, of experiences and feeling uh, of, of interacting with your brand that will make those conversations easier. But it, it is, there is not a button or a dashboard that'll say, oh, we ran these ads or we, <laughs> we gave out these plush thingies at a conference and now look at us. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. And let's, let's transition into what I think are some interesting topics I've pulled off of your uh, newsletter. Talking about some of the sins. I think, you know, the sins of, of e-marketing, of B2B marketing are things that get in your craw. Let's be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, you see it out there a lot. Um, let's talk about a couple of the topics that you've brought up. What I really, I really liked the concept of the octopus. Or yeah. in, in my world, we used to call them architecture diagrams, but it's the, it's the classic sort of, whether it's a Lego building blocks or, or this octopus where you have inputs and outputs and a, a puffy cloud in the middle. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that and what your feeling is about, about those types of uh, visualizations. Yeah, so the octopus I, I had written about where uh, cons uh, customer data platforms, CDPs, seem to all have a diagram on their website that says, oh, we have these, we'll bring in these, it's always four, Inputs on the left, there's like a thing with four inputs. It'll be like your store, your website, email, whatever. Then it's them in the middle. And then four things on the end, like spitting it out to different channels. And so it looks like an octopus. There's eight legs and a thingy in the middle. And I look, I also, when I was at Blue Core, which is a marketing automation company, uh, we created an octopus too. Because like when people would say, what do, what do you do? We'd say, oh, we take data in and then magic. And then we spit the data out and it's better. Uh, and so it feels like, oh, look, this represents what we do. The problem is when there's all nine of your competitors have an octopus, it, it's not shorthand for anything. It doesn't do anything. It just fills up the space. And that space should be used for telling your story as a differentiator. And so the octopus maybe at some point meant something. And now it just means, oh, you're like a software company. 
It doesn't, it doesn't represent anything. And nobody is, and you can see it on some of the websites when you go to look at the octopus. The letters are so small, even when I'm wearing glasses and I'm old, like, it's clear they don't actually want you to read the, the little inputs or the outputs. And if you don't want people to read that, then why is the thing there? It's, you know, someone in product marketing was like, well, this, is, this represents what we do, but you should tell the story. Just how is it different? Is there a thing you take in differently? Is there a thing you spit out differently? Is, do you work with different types of companies? There's, it, doesn't, it doesn't say anything. And that's my issue. Not that it's bad. It's that you've got a limited amount of space on your homepage. All of it should say something that tells everybody we are for these types of people in this unique way. Yeah, that gets to sort of one of your other, other pet peeves, the sins, is the fear of being explicit. Right, sort of avoiding that, or it's it's so hard to do. I I I, I feel the pain. Uh, I'm interested in, in the way you sort of uh, approach it. I think of it very defensively. We're afraid of turning somebody off, and so by being as broad as possible, like we're a whatever for customer obsessed brands. Like, what company is like, oh, we're customer obsessed, or what company is like, oh, we're not customer obsessed at all. Like that doesn't, it doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't. And so if you're not going to, if you're not going to, it has, in, in marketing, it works best. Marketing works best when the reader has an emotional feeling about the words they see or the images or, you know, it, there should be some emotional connection because it resonates and the person, the target buyer should say, oh yeah, that's me. I get that. And when something like customer obsessed, which I do see in a lot of places, or customer focused, who's not customer focused? Like for saying like, oh, it's for uh, marketers who hate terrorism. Like, okay, well, right, we all hate terrorism, like mostly. So it, it's it's like such a it's a cop out. It's a way of saying like, no, we're targeted to these people, people who are customer obsessed, but like. No one's going to say they're not customer obsessed. No one doesn't. No one's going to be like, well, you know, and I'm going to go look, go look at this other thing because I don't give a crap about my customers. Yeah, it it doesn't help, and it's not even worth saying. It's like, okay, yeah, what's the real what's the real story there? Uh, it's and it is about being able to tell that story in, in a way that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and is effective. You know, just throwing out catchphrases or. Or words here and there aren't gonna aren't gonna make move it these days because there's so much competition. Uh, if you yeah, think about, if, if you are customer obsessed and or you're for people who are customer obsessed, fine, that great. The, there should be a quote from one of your users who says, "We moved our NPS score from blah to blah because we bought this thing." Like, oh, that that right? Your customers now love you because of this. Great, like that that shows something. Right, like you don't have to say customer obsessed. You just say like, oh, in the way that we measure how much our customers love us, we saw the needle move because we bought this product. Yeah, and and so what it gets down to, I think, at the most pure sense, is is the words you choose and how you order them, right? And one of the pieces that you describe often is is just wordiness, in the inability to effectively cut down on the extraneous terms that don't really add value. My favorite ad, I don't know if people have a favorite ad. I have a favorite ad. My favorite ad is an old Volkswagen ad from the 1960s uh, called Lemon. And it is a picture of a VW bug, a beetle, and it just has the word lemon underneath it. 
And it catches your eye because most people don't call, most car companies don't call their own car a lemon. And then they go on in the, the very 1950s and 60s style block text when people used to actually read things. Uh, and it would say, oh, we think there's a lemon because all these things that you would never have noticed were broken, we noticed. And like you would never have seen it, but we know that under the trunk, the screw was supposed to be like this and it wasn't. It's a brilliant piece of copy and it's one word. And it's a lot of words underneath it because it, lemon makes you say, I need to know more. And that's why I actually, it, it's not so much that I'm like, oh, you should write shorter. It's that there's a place for short and there's a place for long and they can definitely work together. That's, if you should look up, if you've never seen lemon, lemon is brilliant because it's, it's, it, it's short and it makes you like, why would they say their own car is a lemon? You have to know more. It's, inc- it's an incredible it's an incredible piece of copywriting and uh, and marketing, and that I'm not saying every website will be lemon, but it should be. There should every single thing should be like should catch your eye and think, no, I need to know the next thing about this. And there's lots of ways to do that. You can use humor, sarcasm. You can catch people off guard. You can be a challenger. You can call people out. You can be empathetic. There's there's so many ways of doing it. Any of them is fine. It's just you should be thinking, not what are they thinking about this piece of text. They should be thinking, how do I get the person to want to read the next piece of text? Yeah, I I like that kind of counter-programming concept where you're just shocking and delighting. Surprise and delight is sort of the concept as well. It's just sort of, oh, that's different. That makes me want to engage me. Uh, And I think that you describe it well there. Another piece that you talk about is sort of positioning. Right, how you compare yourself to others, uh, or what, or, or actually what you decide to compare yourself to, also speaks volumes. So maybe you could speak a little bit about that. Yeah, if you're a product, you can define your competitive set. You can define it. If you don't define it, people will define it for you, and then you don't know how to differentiate. So you, if you, um, the, the reason why I push so hard on. On, on that, it, uh, on defining your target market, it, 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 who you're competing against, your competitive set, is because it will make it much easier for your salespeople to speak very specifically to why this is different than those competitors. And you can dismiss the rest. And the example I'd given in a piece I had written a little while ago was, I think, one of the brilliant things that was lost about Warby Parker. You know, there's lots of great things about Warby. One of the things they did that I thought was amazing was around positioning in that every time they talked about their glasses, they compared themselves to $500 luxury designer glasses by a company called Luxottica. That is all they compared themselves to because there were cheaper glasses on the market. There were stylish glasses on the market. There were cheaper stylish glasses on the market. They weren't competing with them. And if they were, you would say, but other one, there's nice glasses that are $30. Why am I paying $95? Well, you weren't paying, you weren't competing with those. You were getting $500 glasses for $95. They constantly position themselves against a much more expensive product. You can do that in software too. And it doesn't have to be a product. You don't have to position yourself against a specific product. You can position yourself against a specific problem. And it can be uh, time, right? right? Like time wasting can be the, the problem. It can be frustration can be can be the thing you're positioned against. You can have an abstract enemy and like that totally works. And I, I think back 
the old Domino's campaign that's come and gone about uh, the Noid. Like the Noid was an abstract concept. You can hate it or love it, but that's who they positioned themselves against. Like the Noid was uh, if other pizza delivery that the pizza would come cold or messed up or the cheeses slide off. Like they, right? That that's how they positioned it. It was against the concept of messed up pizza delivery. That's kind of brilliant. And it wasn't we're better than Pizza Hut. It was we're better than the bad experience you got in these specific ways. Positioning gives you a tremendous amount of freedom. And people think it's the opposite. Like, well, no, we're really locked in a box if you do that. You're not locked in a box. It gives you the freedom to say, oh, there's a hundred different ways we're different than this very specific thing we're fighting against. You know, it's funny you mentioned the the Domino's Pizza Noid because you probably don't know this, but I actually am a foremost expert on the Noid uh, because I I, I was the Noid. I I got paid as a Domino's Pizza Delivery Driver one night to dress up as the Noid. In the middle of the summer in Atlantic City for the Mike Tyson Michael Spinks boxing match, it was one of the biggest matches ever. It was ninety three degrees, and I am dressed up in essentially a fur coat with oh. the the Noid costume, being driven around the back of a truck. It was a, it was a wonderful experience. I think I, I actually did a story about it once, but but you just you just triggered me uh, anyway. So, but I think those are some good examples, right? Warby Parker, Domino's. Who else out there is is doing it right? Uh, and more in the tech side. Well, let me give you the other example, because this is another way you can do it. Uh, there used to be this Dr. Pepper campaign about be a pepper. And the thing that was great about that commodity product, basically, uh, was the whole concept was Dr. Pepper was for peppers. And the whole thing was like, well, what's a pepper? And a pepper is like people who are like uh, outgoing and like the dancing. <laughs> to coordinated dances in the street and full of life and all that. Like that was really good. They created their own target market. You can do that too, right? Like there's, there's so many ways of doing this that don't have to, it can be concrete and you can say we are, uh, you know, Shopify was basically like, Oh, we're, you know, demand wear, but for small businesses or they sort of the way they really said it was like, Oh, you know how you can sell on Amazon? You can do that yourself. Like creating the business and then the, 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 the thing they were up against that they, they, they competed against was the difficulty of building a website to start – the difficulty of, build, uh, of starting your own business. They're like, we, we, everyone can do it. We make it simple. Brilliant, right? Like they, they would, it, was a very, uh, it was a very emotional connection. Like, and then it's all about the stories they tell are about the wonders of entrepreneurship and starting your own business and the freedom of all that, blah, 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 blah. Like that's brilliant. It doesn't have to be – in tech, you don't have to be com- you don't have to compete against uh, a specific uh, specific other brands necessarily. It can be about um, what you can do, what this thing allows you to do for your customers, and you can tell just customer stories, and then people know like oh, the types of customers who are. Uh, who bring this emotional connection uh, to the company or whatever, that, that's, that's, who, that's who we appeal to because we allow, uh, we allow you to do that. And I'm trying to think of, of, uh, of an example uh, of an example of a company that's done that. You know, it's, it's not tech. Zappos just did, did a brilliant 
just a brilliant job of telling the story of customer service. They didn't sell shoes. They sold customer service, which you knew because their founder used to say, we don't sell shoes. We're a customer service company. And all they did so many things. They let you go visit and they would take their office and they would take you on a tour, which we did and which I did years ago and was amazing. And that, that was like an abstract concept for them. It was, they were uh, competing against the annoyance of having to return shoes and buying shoes online. They, they just made it really easy. I, I, there's so many ways of doing it. And I wish I had like a great tech ex- example. Unfortunately, I don't because they, they, so mostly tech companies neglect to do this. And there are so, so many ways you can do it and be successful. They've just, cho- most companies have just chosen none of them. Yeah. I think, I think that, that puts the uh, challenge out there, tech companies. Let's, let's see a good example of, of the right way to do it. Well, Jared, I want to thank you very much for, for taking this time to speak with us and, and telling us both about Gobbledy and, and some of the, the sins that exist out there in our B2B marketing space. Um, if folks want to get in touch with you, what's probably the best way for them to do that? Uh, it's Jared, J-A-R-E-D, at SageLit, S-A-G-E-L-E-T-T dot com. That's uh, our parent company of Gobbledy, Jared at SageLit.com. Awesome. Well, thanks again, and I uh, look forward to reading and hearing more from you in the future. Thank you, Eric.